Probably the one I'm most interested in, in getting into for purposes of this session is actually John 17. But I've got some other text I'd rather uh, talk about first to kind of set up the discussion of John 17. And of course, John 17, which we'll get to in a few minutes, is the text where John records for us the prayer Christ prays prior, just prior to his betrayal. Right. So we'll go there in a minute. But I want to start in John 13. Um, and make a point that I'm sure... Um, Sure, we're all familiar with, but but I want us to hone in on this and keep this very much in mind. Uh, this is John 13, beginning in verse 31 and, and going on down to about 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And then 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right here we've got emphatic teaching from Christ as he's preparing his disciples for what's coming, right? And of course, we know what's coming, right? Uh, his passion, right? His death, his burial, his resurrection, and then after a period, his ascension, right? So he's preparing his disciples, particularly the ones closest to him, for that, uh, for his departure. And, and in doing that, he's concerned to give them, as we read here, a new commandment, right? And what's the commandment? That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now jump over to, uh, to John 15. By the way, uh, notice he also says in, in 1335, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I take this to mean Jesus understands the love His people have for one another to be the distinguishing mark of His people. In other words, how is it according to Christ people ought to know that you belong to Him? It ought to be by watching the way you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? That loving one another is to be what distinguishes us as the people of God, as Christians. Now jump to John 15, and of course we get very similar language here. John 15, 12. This is my commandment. Again, it's Jesus. You know it because it's in red. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And I'm going to stop there, right? But here again, we get this really strong emphasis from Christ uh, as he's teaching his disciples uh, uh, very close to the time that, uh, that uh, the passion is going to play out and he's going to, uh, to go to the cross uh, and, and go through that ordeal. Uh, he's very concerned to emphasize this point about loving one another. 
Now, that being said, fast forward to 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. This is 1 John 3. And not surprisingly, you're going to hear echoes in what John writes here to what he records in his Gospel, what he records Jesus is saying. So this is 1 John 3, beginning in 16. John says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right, Little children, let us not love in word or deed. Let's not just talk it, let's live it. Right? I'm, I'm sorry, in uh, word and talk, but rather in deed and in truth. But then notice what John goes on to say in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For, wherever, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Notice what John's saying here. He's calling his readers to emulate Christ specifically with respect to loving one another sacrificially. And then he says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Now, I don't know about you all. When I was growing up in a Baptist church, right, the emphasis was often placed, especially around the time that the service was ending and we would have an invitation, the emphasis was often placed on, you know, knowing the time and the place when you pray to prayer. I don't know, maybe your all's experience is different. Uh, again, YMMV, right? Your mileage may vary. But I grew up with the impression that the mark of whether or not you were a Christian was whether or not you could point to a time when you'd pray to prayer. And maybe none of the rest of you grew up you know, with that kind of perspective kind of just taken for granted. Let me point out to you, that's not biblical. The biblical test for whether or not you are Christ is not can you point to a time when you pray to prayer. The biblical test uh, test for whether or not you are Christ is twofold, and it's this. It's not, did you sometime in the past do something? Rather, it's about now, and the question is this Do you want to know if you're His? What do you believe, and how are you living? Those are the questions. And if your belief doesn't conform to the teaching of Christ and His apostles, or your behavior doesn't accord with what God has called you to in Christ, then you need to do some self-examination. I take that to be the New Testament text. right? What do you believe and how are you living? And with respect to how you're living, the primary question is, uh, do you love the people of God? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is absolutely critical for the New Testament. Indeed, I see John here is saying, as we love one another sacrificially, this will confirm for us that we are His. Okay, now that being said, let me take you to a couple of other texts. Um, Philippians 1.27. Let's see, General Electric Power Company. Or Go Eat Popcorn. Or I know there are a bunch of these out there, right? Uh, 
Yeah, oh, never mind. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> um, now I'm going to be thinking about that the rest of the evening, right? It's going to nag me. No, that's okay. Philippians 1.27. Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Right? So it's been granted to you to suffer, notice. That's not the way we typically think about suffering, is it? Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And then we get into chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to stop there. Just as an aside, I think verse 4 is mistranslated here. And I suspect whatever version you have mistranslates it too. Verse 4 in the version I'm reading, which happens to be the ESV, says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And if you were to study the Greek New Testament and study Greek, you would know uh, or come to know that you could translate the Greek of that verse in the way that the ESV translates it. But it's not the only way you can legitimately translate it. And I think the way the ESV handles this is actually misleading. If you have the NIV, you'll have instead of only, merely. Don't look merely to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Well, if you have the NIV, merely is probably in italics. And the reason it's in italics is because it's not actually in the Greek text. Now, don't misunderstand me. You can legitimately translate this text in that way. But here's another way you can, you, can you can translate it legitimately, and I want to suggest to you this is the sense of what Paul's saying. You can translate it, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, you can translate it that way, fair enough, but here's another way you can legitimately translate this. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. And frankly, if you're following the flow of the text, that fits what Paul says better. Because Paul's going to hold up Christ as the supreme example of this, right? And if you think about it, Christ didn't tack your interest onto his, right? He wasn't looking out for his, but also making sure he looked out for yours along the way. Rather, he subordinated his interest for your sake. Does that make sense? And I think that's precisely what Paul's calling us to here. So he begins in 127 saying, let your manner of life be worthy or let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when he fleshes this out, what does that look like? It looks like a love of, I'm sorry, a life of sacrificial love in unity with the people of God. Incredibly important for Paul. 
Now, keep going to, uh, uh, to I guess, turn to the left, uh, but not too far. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, of course, this is still Paul writing. So this is Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 1. And I want you to notice how similar what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and following is to what we just read in Philippians 1.27 and following. They're very similar passages. So Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to stop there, but you'll notice he begins chapter 4 of his letter to the Ephesians with, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ, just as he calls the Philippians in Philippians 1.27 to live lives worthy of their calling in Christ. And just as he does in Philippians, he goes on to flesh out what that looks like. And what does it look like? It looks like a life of humility, of gentleness, of kindness, above all, of love for your, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, in, in Philippians, having made that point, Paul then goes to hold up Christ as a supreme example, right? So Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't see equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather emptied himself. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. Even, even to the point of death on a cross and so forth and so on, right? What Paul does when he talks to the Philippians is he says, I want you to live lives worthy of your calling. What's that look like? It looks like a life of sacrificial love for one another. Let Christ be your supreme example here. He does the same thing with the Ephesians, right? I want you to live lives worthy of your calling, <laughs> And what does that look like? Well, a life of humility, gentleness, kindness, above all, unity and love. And then he does the same thing he does in Philippians, although it takes him longer to get around to it. But again, he holds up Christ as a supreme example. So we get to chapter 5, verse 1, where this culminates, and he says what? Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice he does the same thing in Ephesians that he does in Philippians. He calls his readers to live lives worthy of who they are in Christ. And what does that mean? It means living lives above all of sacrificial love for the people of God. And he holds up Christ both in Philippians and in Ephesians as a supreme example of this. And he explicitly mentions Christ's sacrificial offering of himself here. Okay, all of that's background, right? Now, that being said, let's go to the text I'm interested in, John 17. John 17, 1 and following, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And then verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. By the way, notice what Jesus says here in verse 4. Notice this is prior to the cross. And yet, what does He say prior to the cross? I have accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. Does that strike you as odd? I mean, what did Christ come to do? I mean, if you ask most Christians, what we will typically say is, well, He came to die for the sins of the world. At least I hope that's what most would say. And you know, But here, He hasn't done that yet, and yet He says to the Father in prayer, I've accomplished what You sent Me to do. Well, He goes on to explain this. Jump down to verse 6. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. I have manifested your name. What's the point here? Well, remember the name of God represents the character of God. The various names that God has in the Scriptures um, you know, tell us about His character. And I take it when Jesus in prayer to the Father says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The point is, as He has already said, I have made you known and that's the reason which you sent me here for. Right to make you known, and, and notice right the the passion of Christ, the the scourging and, and the uh, death uh, and 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 all of its horror, actually only lasted a matter of hours, right? And yet his public ministry was three years, right? So a relatively short time of of his ministry here on earth. What was was spent in the in the events uh, of the passion? Don't get me wrong; I'm not trying to downplay the importance of that. But what I do want to upplay is the importance of his earthly ministry. His earthly ministry was all about making the Father known. So much so that he says to his disciples in another passage in this very gospel, "Have you been with me so long and you do not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because Christ came to reveal the Father. Right." Anyway, back to John 17. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. By the way, let me stop there. I'm praying for them. Notice in this prayer, just prior to to being betrayed and the events of the Passion, Christ's concern is not to pray for Himself. It's rather to pray for those who are His. That's the kind of love that He models for us. But notice what He prays. Two things He prays for His followers. Nine, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to You, 
And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I'm going to stop there. What are the two things that Christ primarily prays for when He prays for His disciples prior to the events of His passion? Well, the two things He prays for are, first of all, that the Father would protect His disciples since He will no longer be there to do it. And then, prior even to that, He prays that by the will of the Father, His people will be united. They will be one. Just as He says, Father, You and I are one. Now what am I getting at here? What am I driving at? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what I'm driving at. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us it teaches us many things, but, but it teaches us, among other things, that God Himself is a community of Father, Son, and Spirit. And He wants His people to be a community that emulates the community that is the Trinity. Among Father, Son, and Spirit, you have perfect love and perfect communion. And His people are to follow on the work that Christ was given by the Father of making God known to men. And one of the key ways they are to do this is by living the lives of sacrificial love for one another that they're called to. Why? Because this reveals to an unbelieving world what God is like. In fact, it's interesting to note, if you read early Christian apologists, which, by the way, I would highly recommend doing, if you read early Christian apologists, which really, and by the way, I should back up, what is an apologist? Well, I mean, it's not somebody who just goes around saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right? Uh, an apologist, uh, we get the word from the Greek word that means to defend. A Christian apologist is somebody who seeks to defend the truth of the faith against attacks. Well, what's interesting is, if you look at the early church and the people, the men in the early church who are doing apologetic ministry, defending the faith, defending the truth of God in a pagan culture, not unlike ours in many ways, but I'm not going to pursue that. You know, these early Christian apologists, their primary defense of the faith is not to throw out arguments for the truth of the faith. That doesn't mean they can't do that but they're not primarily interested in putting evidence on the table in the way in which you and I might think of evidence. Rather, here's what they say to the pagan world around them. You want to know the authenticity of what we believe? Watch us live. Why? Because you cannot explain the love we have for one another apart from the work and the power of God. So if you want to see us vindicated, you watch us live. More specifically even, you watch us love. Why, why did the early Christian apologists take this approach? I would suggest it's because they believe what Jesus said in John 13. <laughs> this is how they'll know your mind by the love you have. This is what is to distinguish you as my people. And again, why is unity and love for one another in the church so important? Well, I think the fundamental importance of it arises out of the very nature of God Himself. If we are to be His sons and daughters, remember what I said earlier about 
you know, you're, you, you, you Jewish leaders, you're, you're not the children of Abraham because you don't do what Abraham did. And if you don't do what he did, you're not his children. Why? Because again, right, children of a father emulate their father. Well, if we are to be true sons and daughters of the God who is triune, who is eternally in commune, community, uh, one, one divine person with the other two, and, and, uh, and in, in that community loves one another, they love one another perfectly. If that's who God is, then if we are to be His true sons and daughters, we are called to emulate and to do what He has done. If that makes sense. Well, I, I think it does. I hope it does, right? So one of the really critical um, implications of the doctrine of the Trinity is um, it absolutely ought to inform our, our life as the people of God. Just as an aside, I teach apologetics. That's part of what I do at the seminary. Um, and I have to be honest with you and tell you that kind of argument that early Christian apologists would make appealing to the life of the church and the love that Christians had for one another as a vindication of the faith, it's not easy for me to make that argument today. I don't want to pursue that point, although if you want to in Q&A, we can talk more about that. I think part of my ministry is helping to call the people of God back to this life of sacrificial love. So I think as an apologist, maybe I have more to say to the church than to the world outside the walls of this building. 